Bibles, if you would, let's look at Luke chapter 12, where we have been. Coming into the holiday season, of course, we will be uh, taking some studies in other texts, but we, uh, we wanted to resume our study of Luke 12 this morning. We've been talking, as you know, about the fear of God as it relates to what Jesus was saying here to a group of the religious elite from Israel about the matter of hypocrisy. Jesus is addressing the issue of hypocrisy. And you remember, because he's headed to Jerusalem, it's getting more intense with them. And so I want to return to this study because it is important what Jesus says here from from three angles. Whenever a principle is shared by the Lord in the manner that he shares it here, where he's talking about the issue of hypocrisy, it serves three purposes. The first purpose is, is to indict those who wear a mask to indict those who are spiritual phonies. They have a pretense on the outside, but on the inside, they're dead, Jesus says. The second purpose that these kinds of straightforward statements about hypocrisy can serve is that they are a great encouragement to the believer. Someone who knows the Lord, loves the Lord, these are great encouraging statements. For example, you remember it says in verse 2, there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Hey, that's a great encouragement to the believer in the sense that there are all kinds of things we do with right motives, genuine hearts. We serve the Lord and fruit is born, but we can't measure it. We often don't see it. Some, sometimes other people in the body of Christ don't see it. But here's the reality. Heaven records it. It's just as though Paul was saying to the Romans when he said that suffering stores up for you an eternal weight of glory. It's in the same way that the reality that everything's going to be uncovered that's been done will also magnify God's glory and demonstrate what was really going on in your life. In Christ, some great ministry happens. In Christ, some good motives are there. In Christ, fruit is born. And in glory, all of it's going to be made known. That's an encouragement especially when it comes to affliction and suffering. There isn't any kind of suffering that you're going to face as a Christian that isn't being marked down, written down, recorded in heaven, recorded in glory, and it is storing up an eternal weight of the magnification of God's glory and all that that means in terms of the believer's reward with Christ. All of our affliction is being stored up in that sense for that day when God will make all things right. So in one sense, Discussion on hypocrisy, as Jesus gives it here, is an indictment to the hypocrite. It is an encouragement to the believer about those times when there's genuineness in us. But they also serve a third purpose, and that is to warn us as Christians. We're in Christ, but we sometimes reflect the the old life. We sometimes reflect what we were. We were hypocrites. We did not serve the Lord faithfully. We did not know the Lord in our pagan life. We maybe even had some modicum of religious pretense. And there was hypocrisy there. We lived in the suppression of the truth, Romans 1 says. And even if we didn't grow up with any religious pretense, we were suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And Romans 1 says, as a fabric of who we are, made in the image of God, we knew those things were wrong and worthy of death and punishment, but we suppressed even that. And sometimes as believers, we can wear masks like we used to in the old life. And so teachings like this serve as a warning to us to never let the seeds of hypocrisy grow, never let any moment of hypocrisy go unchecked. 
I said to you last time that hypocrisy at its core is the absence of the fear of God. Hypocrisy is the absence of the fear of God. That's why we're warned by Jesus not to even let a small amount of it go unchecked. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is that, that yeast ingredient put into dough, and it begins to permeate. And when it permeates, the dough rises, and, and the influence is, is permeating, completely permeating, total Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Watch out for it. In all of its subtle forms, watch out for it. Well, that's an indictment on the Pharisees he's talking to and anyone else who lives like them. It is an encouragement, what he's about to say, to the believer where genuine service to Christ has been rendered because it is recorded in heaven and it is comforting to know. It's also a warning to us. Because we sometimes allow subtle forms of hypocrisy to go unchecked in our lives. And if those subtle seeds of hypocrisy go unchecked, then they begin to form more and more subtle forms of it as the pattern grows, and it isn't long before we become more and more blind to them. You let that go on long enough, you begin to see it permeate your life. And as it permeates your life like the yeast in the dough, you become a pretender by practice, pretending one thing but being another. And if all of that gets ignored, hypocrisy can set in to the degree that there's no discernible fear of God at all. You ever met someone who professes Christ who doesn't seem to fear God at all when it comes to his word, doesn't seem to fear God at all when it comes to the patterns of their sin? They never really lay an ax at the root of those dynamics. They never really fight as hard as the Spirit of God gives us resources to fight. They just sort of get on cruise control mode. What is happening there are levels of hypocrisy that are causing the, the fear of God to get muted in one's heart and conscience to the point where sometimes in some people there's, there's no discernible fear of God, though they profess to know the Lord. Eventually, they're able to move comfortably in and around believers without, without dealing with their hidden sins, without even breaking a sweat over their hidden sins. It's not a concern to them much at all. They join in the spiritual conversations. They're a part of ministry life. But as soon as the Bible is opened and truth is proclaimed, they yawn. Their countenance glazes over. That's what eventually happens when a friend might come to you and say, hey, I, don't, I wonder about your profession of faith. Did you know that we can't leave one's profession of faith with merely their own words? We're taught in the Bible to know them by their what? by their fruits. And of course, false teachers were in mind in Matthew 7 when Jesus mentions that reality, but there are outward signs that give no evidence or proof necessarily that someone is in Christ, one of which is a profession of faith. The mere words, hey, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Hey, I, I believe Jesus died for our sins on the cross. And Jesus himself in Matthew 7 warns about the reality of leaving it merely with the verbiage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So it's about obedience. It's about humble submission to God's will. And if you had been with Jesus in his earthly ministry and gone up to him and said, I believe in you, he wouldn't necessarily open his arms to you if he knew in your heart there was this pretense. 
John 2 says that all kinds of people believed in his name, but he wasn't entrusting himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man and he did not need anyone to tell him what man tended toward. He tended toward speaking with authority about your life, but all the hidden things tell a different story. A profession of faith doesn't necessarily mean that you're a believer, even a sincere one. Or what about religious activity? I mean, the Pharisees were all about their little meticulous religious activities. But even in that Matthew 7 passage, verse 22, they said to the Lord in that comment Jesus makes, well, didn't we do all kinds of religious activities in your name? And he says to them, depart from me. I don't know you. I've never known you. Here's Jesus talking to Pharisees in Luke 12, and they have a zeal for their outward acts, but Paul tells the church in Rome, look, Israel has a zeal for God, but without heart change. They never humble themselves and come under the scriptures. Listen, beloved, even if you're in Christ, there are seasons of your life, if you let seed beds of hypocrisy grow, that this passage becomes a warning to you about the dangers of it. It's supposed to be a comfort. What is said here is supposed to be the comfort to the believer and an indictment to the hypocrite. But it can be a very, very important warning for certain seasons of our life. Outwardly, you might have good moral conduct, but Jesus told the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, hey, you can live an honorable, upright, conservative life, but if you have a first love above Christ, God is going to ask you for that, and if you don't give that, it's proof that you don't love him. For the rich young ruler, it was his money. And he went away without Christ because he loved those earthly rewards more than Christ. Even Bible knowledge, we've talked about the fact that a church like ours can grow complacent because we do try to dig into the scriptures as much as possible. And though we're not perfect and our theology isn't flawless or comprehensive, we do like to study the Bible a lot. But that Bible knowledge doesn't mean necessarily that you're a believer. It, it's no proof one way or the other, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. Evil men know the truth. They use it to make a claim to, to godliness, but by their life, they deny its power. And then there's guilt over sin. Remember early on, before I became a Christian, I heard the gospel all my youth ministry life, and, and I would, in the teen years and beyond, the early college years, I would weep over my sin and and uh, have all these pangs of guilt, but it didn't mean I was a believer. I felt sorrow, but I was like Esau in Hebrews 12. I, I wept to have my birthright back. I wept to be rid of the guilty feelings without Christ on his terms. I wept to, to get rid of the consequences of my sin. I wanted an easy life back. I wanted patterns of life that didn't bring those consequences, but I didn't want Christ on his terms. They were just tears of false repentance. On the outside, it might have looked like the genuine deal. There's even some people who have great confidence all the way up to their death. They've lived a hypocritical life. There's no real substantive change. They go all the way to their death, and they say, I'm okay, I'm at peace with my Creator. See, how can that be? Well, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says that the evil one has blinded the hearts of the unbelieving, blinded their minds 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They're about to pass through that threshold and, and it's a profound moment when you're standing there over someone and you're praying for them and they don't believe and you know they lived a hypocritical life and they're saying they're at peace and they're about to go through that barrier and meet the divine terrorist himself, God, with no hope. It's a profound moment because hypocrisy has reigned. So, beloved, hypocrisy is the epitome of ignoring the fear of God. Why? Because hypocrisy lives under an illusion of hiddenness. First of all, hypocrisy lives under an illusion of hiddenness. And, and just by implication, hypocrisy then thinks only of the here and now. Hypocrisy thinks it is hidden, and hypocrisy thinks about the temporal. Everything's about right now, how I look, my reputation, what I can gain, the advantages I want in life. And if that's the case, then hypocrisy assumes that God is distant and indifferent to those things. Hypocrisy ignores the notion of having to answer. Romans 1 says they give hearty approval to those that do these things. They approve of their own life doing these things, but they know they're worthy of death. So they're just suppressing what they know is coming. You will give an answer. But hypocrisy ignores that notion, suppresses it. And I, I suppose one more implication of hypocrisy is the banks on God being sentimental. That in the end, and you hear this all the time, God is sentimental. Oh, he'll, he's not going to ever send anyone to that kind of punishment because he wouldn't do that. God is love. There's a sentimental notion about God's love or that he's weak and merely will wink at these things. So if we're going to learn the dangers of hypocrisy and how to avoid it, we've got to, we've got to counter every one of those ideas. This error that there's an illusion of hiddenness. This error that thinks only of the here and now. This error that imagines God is distant and indifferent. This error that you won't have to answer or that somehow in the end there's sentimental God that you're going to face or, or one who winks at sin. We've got to build strong convictions about the straightforward truths and Jesus gives them to us here and I introduced them to you last time, five reasons that you should avoid hypocrisy and, and maybe even we could say five reasons you should be comforted if you're not a hypocrite. Five reasons that when, you're, when your motives are good, you should be comforted so that we can allow any lofty thought raised up against the knowledge of God to be swallowed up in, in the captivity of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5, take every thought captive. Reason number one counters that first error. If there's an illusion of hiddenness in hypocrisy, then reason number one Jesus gives here for fleeing hypocrisy is that God will uncover everything hidden. He will uncover everything hidden. Verse 2, there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, verse 3, whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light and what you've whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. So there it is. Instead of the illusion of hiddenness, we must know that there isn't a single moment in any human being's life all throughout history that will somehow escape the final scrutiny of the omniscient creator of the universe. And notice the, the way that Jesus says it here for an absolute contrast. Everything that was in the dark will be in the light. Everything whispered in the inner room will be proclaimed on the housetops. Everything private is now public. 
Now, again, that's an indictment to the hypocrite. Well, he's, he's behind closed doors. He's, he's thinking that he can hide the, the motives of his heart and put a mask on of pretense and self-righteousness and even judgment of other people. But it's an encouragement to the believer who has done ministry for Christ and with good motives, and even that will be made public. It's an even greater encouragement if you've suffered affliction in this life. It is marked down, recorded in heaven, and it is commensurate. In other words, every amount of affliction has a commensurate reward in glory with Christ because every affliction has a part and parcel upholding of your reflection of God's glory in heaven. Everything you endured here, you reflect God's glory more there and you reap the, the, the joy of it. In fact, it'll be given to you in abundance how God used affliction in your life here if you genuinely responded to it to demonstrate all the multiple ways that he used it mightily in your life, your family's life, anyone else's life, and even in generations to come when you're gone and with Christ in glory. It is stored up to bring about a depth and magnification of God's glory that far outweighs Paul said, far outweighs the affliction you endured. What an encouragement that even your private afflictions in the middle of the night when no one's around and no one sees it, when you can't be tempted to be self-absorbed because there's no one there that knows your private agony, everything private's going to be made public. That is powerful. That is rich. Who knows the private agonies that have gone on in the afflictions of living in a fallen world when God allows you to go through a secret trial and no one knows the depth of your pain and the level of your pain. And you don't even want to talk about the level of it because after all, you don't want to be self-serving. But oh, it's painful and no one's around to know it. Jesus says, accordingly, everything that is in the dark is going to be put in the light. Everything that is private is going to be public. And so for the hypocrite, you're in serious trouble for the, the genuine believer without a hypocritical heart, this is great comfort. And for the believer working on patterns and staying away from hypocrisy, this is a great warning. This is a great warning. There's no illusion of hiddenness. You're not going to escape the final scrutiny. You say, how can that be? Well, just, just thinking about it from the standpoint of who God is, the reason everything's going to be unearthed like this is because everything is known to God. God's knowledge, says the scriptures, is infinite. God's knowledge is infinite. Psalm 33, 13 to 15. Look at Psalm 33 for a moment. This is absolutely rich and about as clear as it can be stated. Psalm 33, verse 13. The Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the sons of men, and from his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all, wow, he fashions the hearts of them all, he fashions their hearts together, that is to say, each individual and the collective Hearts of humanity. He has watched over them and he has fashioned all of them specifically. And verse 15, he who understands all their works. What do you mean understands them? Comprehensive knowledge of what men do, why they do it, how it is done. 
its beginning, its end, its, endu- its duration. He knows it all. He knows it all infinitely. A New Testament passage which pulls it together and simplifies it is Hebrews 4, 13. There is not a creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do or with him to whom we must answer for all of this. That's why verse 12 of Hebrews 4 says the word of God cuts all the way between thoughts and intentions. You, wanna, you want clarity on your life? God has clarity. You may not be able to know your heart. The word of God can divide between thoughts and intentions. When you read it, it brings that level of spiritual molecular division so you can see it clearly and discern. But even when you can't get past anything more than your own murkiness, God knows. He knows. And there is no amount of excuse-making. There is no amount of of defensiveness. There is no amount of running and hiding that is going to stop the reality of his full comprehensive knowledge of all of it. What a reminder to stay away from a hidden heart because it is not hidden. Somebody asks you a direct question and you evade the question. God knows you didn't evade anything. God knows. Somebody misjudges your motives, but you know in your heart of hearts your motive was genuine. God knows how encouraging is that. How can God do that? It's his nature. He's sovereign. He is pure and holy. He's precise. God is absolutely precise. Did you know that? That's why when you study the Bible, you should not settle for generalities and murkiness. God wrote it to be revealed. That's why it's called revelation. He wants it to be known. Whatever he gave to us to know, he wants it to be known. And other than obscure passages which, which we can't, can't bridge the gaps with from our language and our historical distance from it, we are to know because God gave a precise word. Why? Because his character is precise. His nature is precise. So we should study it to know our God. And he wants to be clear. So he, he himself is perfect clarity. He knows everything about our hearts with perfect clarity. He's infallible. He's truthful. He's perfect and righteous in his justice. He has ultimate power. And he is full of majestic glory, which must be displayed perfectly. So his nature demands what Jesus says is going to happen here. Everything's going to be made known. His nature demands it. On that day, nothing will be hidden because his very nature demands that it be made known so it can be viewed as how it glorifies God. Everything's going to be made known so that the hypocrite glorifies God in his judgment so that God's justice is upheld and the believer is upheld in his redemption because God is glorified in saving the sinner. Everything must be made known. All of it. And it is God who searches the deep things, 1 Corinthians 2, 11. And so there is nothing outside of God's knowledge. It is infinite. All my ways, all my steps, Job says in Job 31, 4. His eyes are upon all the ways of man, Job 34, 21. He sees all his goings. God knows. He watches Psalm 139, verse 16, he has divine foreknowledge and foreordination. He ordains it all. That's how he knows it all. 
And by the way, it is incomprehensible knowledge. That is to say, our finite minds cannot plumb its depths. As Isaiah 55 said, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. That is an indictment to the hypocrite and a comfort to the believer and a warning to our old patterns. Job 11, 7 through 9, the depth and the breadth of God is inaccessible, verse 7. It's inaccessible. You and I in our finite minds cannot access it. Can you penetrate the extreme? The question was asked. Can you go to the boundless? Can you gather it in and hold it? God's nature can't be fully discovered. His end is unattainable, and he stretches far beyond human thought. That's why Psalm 145, verse 3 says, his greatness is unsearchable, cannot be traced out. I love that. So just think about it. It doesn't matter what goes on in God's universe under his sovereign will that a man can't sort out. There's nothing that happens that, that um, I can't fully explain or can't completely solve or can't bring full to full light that God's character will not bring to full light and solve. Everything in his creation will be brought to its culmination and ultimately revealed. And this is frightening news as Jesus gives it to the Pharisees. It is comforting news as he is giving it to believers. In fact, notice verse 6, Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear you are more valuable than many sparrows. One of the principles for avoiding hypocrisy is this great comfort that God is caring for his own. He marks out the hypocrite. He marks out his children. He protects his children. And he notes all of it, records all of it. And he will judge all of it. He will. And he won't be sentimental and sappy. He won't be. Romans 2, 16, Paul told the the Jews there at the church at Rome, listen, you think God's going to be lenient because you're his chosen people as a nation and you've been given his word and the oracles of God and you've been given the covenants and you are the one to whom belongs this great relationship with God and all other nations have to come to you to get to God. You think God's going to be lenient at the judgment with all that? It isn't going to happen. He's not going to be lenient. He's going to come at this impartially and you will answer for the mask that you wear. Marvelous, this great comfort in knowing that everything will be opened up. Sometimes I think about just what we say. <laughs> wow, every word, Matthew 12 says, hmm. every word's coming back up. Every word. It's going to come back up. John 5 says that it's going to come back up as a witness as to what you were. Were you redeemed or were you not redeemed? Were you a Christian who didn't heed the warnings and had patterns of sin in your life? Or were you a phony? Were you a Christian who had genuine motives and no one believed your motives and everybody persecuted you but God recorded that it was pure? Every word is coming back. And we say a lot of things, don't we? Proverbs 19.10, where there are many words, sin is unavoidable. We've talked about that, haven't we? He who restrains his lips is wise, we're told. Yeah, I would think so if it's all coming back up. It's all moving toward a time when God will reveal it all. 
And so we ought to we ought to operate in our Christian life, Paul tells the Colossian believers, as, as with all our might before the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. There it is. We live, as the old reformer said, in the presence of God every day. What a warning. Coram Deo. You want integrity? Then don't attempt to compartmentalize your life. You want humility? Then don't do anything for your glory and try to steal God's. It's all being recorded. He knows. The second reason, and we'll finish here in the last few minutes we have, the second reason we find in verses 4 and 5, the first is that everything will be revealed that is hidden. The second reason is that God alone holds the keys to punishment, the keys to hell. Notice verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. You fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, he is talking to a crowd and and, and some close disciples and then those that spread out, and he is trying to to help them understand, look, don't follow those Pharisees. You may be afraid of them. You may fear men. They're about to take me and do what they want with me. I'm giving myself into their hand. Do not follow them in their hypocrisy. Don't do it. Because at that point, you are involving yourself in an illegitimate fear. It's short-lived, it's temporal, and it is, by comparison, of no consequence. None. You say, why? Well, notice the implications of what Jesus says. Don't fear those who, after they've killed the body, they, they have no more that they can do. I love that phrase. So, you know, just, just think about it. Humanity's very worst that they can do is to rise up in hatred and choose to end another human being's life by force. That is the worst that a human being can do. They could torture you, make some indignities occur, things like that. Do not fear that. Jesus says, because humanity cannot go beyond the grave. That is a barrier that human beings cannot go until they die and then they face what's on the other side. So prior to that, temporal things are all you can accomplish. So you cannot take our worst against others in this life and reach into eternity and do the same thing in the next life. You know, people, people in false religions today think that by, by keeping you out of their religion because you don't conform to them, that you're creating some bad karma for them in the next life. No, you're not. There's no such thing. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed unto men once to die, then comes judgment. There is no such thing as some this life, then good karma, bad karma for the next life. Or, or some think that by killing you, they're doing God's bidding as the Pharisees thought when they killed Christ, they were doing God's bidding, as, as if somehow they're reaching beyond the human temporal barrier and, and doing something in the future. Yeah, we rid, we rid the world of you. This is what it will be in the persecution of Christians. We rid the world of you. We rid, rid eternity of you. There's, no, there's nothing for you, even this life or beyond the next. Jesus says it's impossible. They don't reach beyond that barrier ever. They cannot harm anything but a temporal life. That's it. So the hypocrite is to be warned, whatever, look, whatever you control, however you dominate others, in whatever way you scheme against people or you work against them in the here and now, that's all you'll ever be able to do. 
And so Jesus, by comparison here, teaches us that there is a, another greater reality which, by comparison, makes physical death absolutely of no consequence. Painful? Yes. The sanctity of life is wonderful. We should uphold it? Yes. Because we're peers. But God does what he wants to do, and he's to be feared. What we do to one another, it's temporal. You know, I think about martyrs. I read about the martyrs in history. It's a, it's a fascinating those are fascinating seasons in the history of God's people. Um, but you think about what enemies of the gospel want out of someone who's a Christian that they're persecuting and maybe even torturing unto death. It's just fascinating. All they really want from them is some sort of denial of what they believe. And, and then they're satisfied. So, in other words, deny Christ or you'll die. So the person is tortured and tortured and tortured. They're mentally spent. They're physically shocked. They're emotionally traumatized, and a brief statement that seems to be a denial of what they believe is coerced out of them, and the torture stops. They think they're really accomplishing something. And it's rather a, a sign of Satan's pitiful works in that he thinks that that's accomplishing anything eternal. It's accomplished nothing eternal. Oh, Peter was the man with the keys of the kingdom. And in the courtyard, Satan got a bunch of people in a crowd to go after Peter. And Peter was weak and proud, and he had fear of man. And so he denied Christ three times. Did it steal Peter's soul? No. Because after the resurrection, Jesus on the beach said, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes. He said, feed my sheep. I'm commissioning you. You're mine. In fact, he prayed for him ahead of time. Hey, Peter, I've prayed for you. And after you have failed, I want you to return and encourage others. Satan had no way of going past the barrier once a person is redeemed. All he could do is kill Peter. Jesus even told him that would happen. You know, Peter, one day they're going to come, they're going to tie you up, and they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And it says there in John's gospel that he, Jesus was talking about how Peter was going to die. Physically. So here's Jesus introducing Peter to his upcoming martyr's death as if it's casual speech over breakfast. Why? Because that's all they can accomplish. Coercing a little denial under duress, and they think they've had a victory. Or if the person doesn't deny and, and isn't under duress enough to go to that level, then they kill them. Yeah, and? Because that's a Christian, and that Christian fears nothing beyond the grave. Their soul is secure. That Christian doesn't fear death. It's a mere transfer. They say, but it was painful. They got tortured. That's right. They got tortured. Some of the martyrs in Christian history are profoundly traumatizing to read about. I'm sure to live them was even, was even more incomprehensible. But Jesus says right here, look, temporal death is of no significance to the believer. It is for the hypocrite, however, a passing through the barrier into a frightening reality. So it is such an encouragement here that Jesus says, look, do not fear those who can do nothing more than kill the body. But notice, I will warn you whom to fear. In other words, I'll demonstrate it, Jesus says. I'll show you, is, is the, the literal language. I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast you into the Gehenna, the final judgment. The final judgment. 
Fear him. Why? Because he has authority. You pass through that barrier, he has authority. He will give life to whom he wishes, and he will judge all those who do not believe. So, that's all the, the pagan can do, is kill the body. We're not to fear that. We're not to go along with them. We're not to fear men. They can't touch the heart. John's gospel says they can't snatch us out of the Father's hand. What a great encouragement for the believer and an indictment for the hypocrite. They can't put us in eternal bondage. They can't put bad karma over us. They can't separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. And life is precious, as I said. We, we are to treat the sanctity of human life um, as precious because we're peers in it. We're made in the image of God. We do nothing to, to decide on our own through some hatred to end someone's life. Life is precious. Death is the ultimate enemy. But it's the ultimate enemy not because of any temporal pain or trauma you might endure in death. Death is the ultimate enemy because it is the outward proof of what happened in the garden when Adam was cursed. Spiritual death. That is the ultimate enemy. You shall surely die. In fact, Adam didn't even expire on the spot, you remember? But the corruption in his system became systemic, and it brought not only physical weakness and eventual physical death, but spiritual death. And Jesus is saying, someone who is a hypocrite can do nothing to you other than the physical. What you ought to be concerned about is what's beyond that barrier. You ought to be concerned about that. Because you're dealing with souls. Look, when you look at somebody, do you see souls? Eternal souls. I mean, we are at times as Christians so focused here and so fearful of losing what we have here that we're, we're running after scraps that are of no consequence. And then when we get persecuted and we're so worried that, that the world is going to take away all those things and Jesus right here goes all the way to the end of it. Hey, what if they kill you? Look, all they're doing is killing the temporal and they can do nothing beyond that. It's what's past the temporal that you ought to see. You ought to see souls, your own soul, other people's souls. That's what matters. You ought to remember that beyond that barrier is a God we all must face. Beyond that barrier is a judgment seat of Christ. Beyond that barrier is everything being uncovered that was hidden. Beyond that barrier is the real story, your real spiritual report card. Beyond that barrier is a judge who's righteous and he won't be partial Beyond that barrier, you're going to face the divine terrorist himself who is going to terrorize every soul that has been a hypocrite. And if that makes your mind go to sleep, it's a warning. Maybe hypocrisy has begun to live in your heart to such a degree that you don't see eternal realities. You don't see the verities that go beyond that barrier. You're so attached to what's going on here. You're so afraid of not getting what you have every day here. You're living a mask when you come here to sing, but in your heart of hearts, you're all about the temporal, all about pleasing the world, all about accommodating. Jesus says, don't do that. Do not do that. Look at verse 8. I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. We won't look at that now, but that is a profound statement right on the heels of what he's just said. Fear the one who has the authority 
after he has killed to cast into hell. Fear him. Isn't it interesting that in verse 6, he says, after he has killed. That is to say that no matter what human beings can do to you, it is God's sovereign work that is behind it. Just as he told Joseph in Genesis 50, verse 20, look, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Oh, somebody comes along and does what they can only do to the body and never press through that barrier. Christians aren't to worry about that and become hypocrites in order to make friends with the world. We don't need to do that. Because you know why? Even if someone takes your life, even if they perpetuate an evil against you, God is sovereignly working through that and he's marking it all down. He's noting your response. He's working in you to bring him glory and your greatest good as he's promised and he is making sure they will never get away with anything that they're doing. They don't get away with any of it. In fact, what they are meaning in the very moment for evil, he is working behind the scenes sovereignly, providentially, concurrently to bring about Glory and good. So for the, for the genuine-hearted Christian, this is great comfort. For the hypocrite, this is cause for indictment. He has the authority to cast you into the Gehenna. I'm going to talk about that next time a bit. may not be able to get to it this month. We'll see how it goes. But we want to talk about what Jesus says there. The authority to cast into Gehenna. It, what is hell? Is it forever? Is it annihilation? Is it you go out of existence? What are these temporal notions, these earthly notions that in our hypocrisy we've come up with? What does the Bible actually say about that? And is this something to even be concerned about? I'll tell you what, our evangelicalism in our culture has made eternal punishment into, it's, it's nothing in people's minds. I don't even know why the cross was necessary if hell isn't a reality cross turns into some sort of humanitarian act of compassion and kindness, although I, I can't even understand what that would be. Somebody dying and saying it was for other people when it's actually not for other people? Somebody dying and saying they did it for other people, but it actually accomplishes nothing for those people? Then why was it necessary? See, we come up with those notions because we don't like the idea of what Jesus says here. He says, there is a hell, there is a God whom everyone's going to face. You've got to look at people as souls, and if you're in hypocrisy, you're going to ignore that. It's just going to start to fade, and he's saying it, it should not fade. And Satan's had such a field day complaining against those, those strange and militant sort of versions of so-called Christianity who rail against people with personal hatred. We don't do that. But you know how that's worked? It's worked to mute our view of hell and our preaching on hell. We don't do that anymore. Oh, I don't want to go to a church that preaches on sin or hell. Well, then you don't want to go to a church that repeats what Jesus says. Because he says it right here. You need to fear the one who has the authority to cast you there into the final punishment. Fear him. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't follow them. Don't make friends with them. And you know, beloved, as believers, if you're in Christ, you, you, you're not a spiritual phony. God knows your motives. He knows that in, by his spirit, he's producing some good motives. But we sometimes go back to these old patterns because we're not listening to the truth. We're not heeding the warnings. We're not running away from hypocrisy. We're, we're walking around it, jogging with it, making friends with it, and leaking into it. And these are great warnings to us. Don't do it. 
You'll get blinded by it. You'll be mouthing the words, oh, I love Jesus, and over here you're living for the world. This is why Christianity gets slowly dumbed down because hypocrisy comes in subtly into believers' lives and church leaders' lives. Don't do it. Heed the warning. Flee from it. I love, though we don't have time for it, I love the next one. He says in verse 6, Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't fear, you're more valuable than many sparrows. We're going to deal with that as we talk about eternal punishment. By contrast, the value of a believer to Christ. So rich. He highly prizes his people. That'll be reason number three, and that'll be for our next study. Let's bow. Lord, thank you for your goodness in this text. Wow, you spoke some amazing things that day. And while we see how the Pharisees are indicted in their phoniness, our own hearts are indicted for patterns and weakness, lies we tell ourselves, hiddenness that we try to keep from you, and even secret fears of men fearing culture and fearing not being friends of the culture or not getting what we want of all the wonderful things that you've allowed us to enjoy. We embrace those as if they're the substance instead of embracing you. These are your words, Lord. And there's no way to turn a dimmer switch on them. Somehow make it less penetrating and bright and exposing. Thank you that you're going to bring everything to light. It is unnerving to us for the times when we have been hypocritical and spoken words that we know are going to come back to haunt our, our meeting of you. And yet we thank you that you're going to expose all the evil that's done in secret against the truth, and against you and against your people. We thank you that there is a commensurate glory that comes from all the affliction we face, even, even beyond the public traumas that people know about to those private agonies we experience for your sake in this life. You mark it all down. What a comfort that it will all be made public. And then the slanders that are done in the secret places against your people, you're going to make it all known. What a shock that will be to the hypocrite. But a warning to us Make sure our motives are checked and the masks are off. And Lord, may we fear you and fear the eternal things, see people as souls and let go of the, the things in this life that make us want to be friends with the world to make our comfortable existence. If the truth hits us with indifference, Lord, then we are already blinded and you, you need to wake us up Thank you for these truths. Help us to help one another with them. And Lord, if there's someone here today, just, is just talk. They're all talk. And they're all attendance and they're all outward moral conduct and inside they're all indifference and yawns. Wake them up, oh God, before it's too late. 
And we ask for your grace in all these things, for Jesus' sake, amen.